Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. On today's episode, I have a review of a New Hampshire case from late last year in 2020. The name of the case is State of New Hampshire versus Jeremy Mack. The case regards Mr. Mack's appeal from a charge of criminal possession of psilocybin mushrooms. Specifically, Mr. Mack was appealing on premise that he had possession of the mushrooms under right of religious exemption. Mr. Mack is a member of a branch of the Native American Church, and this particular branch uses more than mere peyote for its rituals, but also permits and uses other substances, including psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, however, Mr. Mack's charge went forward because the state of New Hampshire did not have a specifically defined Supreme Court, New Hampshire Supreme Court precedent, that is, regarding what test the trial court should apply in assessing and evaluating the propriety of a religious exemption defense. And so Mr. Mack's appeal went up to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, who in turn established the compelling interest test as the basis for any review by a trial court of a religious exemption defense. And as a result, Mr. Mack's case was successful on appeal, but was remanded back to the trial court for further proceedings. And those are potentially still going on today, so there's not a complete resolution for Mr. Mack in this appeal, but the good benefit for the psychedelics movement, and in particular psychedelic religions, is that New Hampshire has joined the group of states who apply the compelling interest test, which matches the Religious Freedom Restoration Act test, which again puts the burden of proof on the government, not the individual. So I hope you enjoy the review, and if you have questions, write into the show. And up on the screen, you'll see I've got the opinion, and I'm going to take a little tour through it. We're not going to go through the whole thing. It goes on for well over 20 pages, and it's pretty heady at times. But for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, I wanted to give you just a quick tour and also to point out some interesting elements that are contained within this decision. So setting the stage... We can see here on the screen the caption at the top of the opinion, and it lists the attorneys involved and the parties involved, and we'll just scroll past that. Well, it, these are cases that involve real people, and to that extent, it's important to remember that people's lives are at stake, and this is a criminal case, so somebody is potentially at risk of being imprisoned for these acts. So in that sense, it is important who is behind these cases, but 
As we walk through it today, I'm going to focus more on the what of the case. But remember, these are actual people with actual lives who are potentially threatened by state action. So at the top of the opinion, and this is common with every appellate opinion you'll see, there's typically a summary of what happened and how this case came to the appellate court. And again, this is the New Hampshire Supreme Court, the topmost court in the state of New Hampshire, making a decision of a lower trial court's decision. And what it tells us is that the defendant, Jeremy Mack, was convicted for possession of psilocybin in violation of the New Hampshire Controlled Drug Act. And specifically, he had it in the form of mushrooms, not an extracted psilocybin. And on appeal, Mr. Mack is arguing that the New Hampshire Constitution protects his right to possess and use these mushrooms because he is possessing and engaging with them as part of his religious practice. And this is critical to the conversation in this episode today because we're talking exclusively about the New Hampshire Constitution, which this opinion cites. And this is an important part right here at the top of the opinion. And this paragraph is the, this is a direct quote from part one, article five of the New Hampshire Constitution, which you'll notice is different than the First Amendment under the federal constitution, somewhat. And it reads, quote, every individual has a natural and unalienable right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience and reason, and no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate for worshiping God in the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience or for his religious profession, sentiments, or persuasion, provided he doth not disturb the public peace or disturb others in their religious worship. That's a pretty liberally worded constitutional provision. And again, this is coming from the New Hampshire Constitution. And by the way, this language in the New Hampshire Constitution dates back to the 1700s. They haven't changed it pretty much since the nation was founded. As we go further down into the opinion, we see that the Supreme Court of New Hampshire has dialed in the entire case to just analyzing this single piece of its constitution. The New Hampshire Supreme Court says expressly, the outcome of this appeal turns on the interpretation of the phrase, disturb the peace, as it is contained within the New Hampshire Constitution. Now, the interesting part is the very next sentence, which tells you how they ultimately decided. And then they dive in over the next 20-plus pages explaining it all. But here's what their decision is. Quote, because we now articulate the test required by Part 1, Article 5, we vacate the trial court's order and remand. Which tells us is a foreshadow, and again, as we read into this opinion over the next 20-plus pages, they'll explain it. But what they're saying right up front is, hey... We've never had to deal with this discrete issue before, and thus the trial courts never had really clear guidance on what disturb the public peace means, specifically in context to this art article of the New Hampshire Constitution. And so what the New Hampshire Supreme Court has said as a result of this opinion is, we, the New Hampshire Supreme Court, are now giving the trial courts the test that they are to apply 
when assessing a case against this constitutional standard, and because the trial court didn't have this test in its hands before, they are sending Mr. Mack's case back down to the trial court for a determination. Meaning that as of this moment, while I'm recording this particular episode, I have no idea what happened to Mr. Mack or his case. It's back at the trial court, and a lot of things can happen there, ranging from dismissal to some sort of a plea bargain or settlement to they end up having a trial. But for purposes of today, the most important thing is the New Hampshire Supreme Court has determined that the New Hampshire Constitution has a pretty broad and liberal provision supporting religious freedoms and, in particular, potentially psychedelic religions. And so now we roll down a little further in the opinion and kind of get the story. And that starts in the very next paragraph here, which uh, begins with the pertinent facts are as follows. And I'm not going to read all of this. Uh, You can get this opinion online, or or if you need a copy and you can't find it, just shoot me an email here at admin at psychedelicalex.com, and I, I obviously have a copy. I'm happy to email you a copy. But you can find it online. Just do a search uh, in Google or whatever search engine you like and type in the name uh, of the case in New Hampshire and you'll find it. But the facts are that in 2017, Mr. Mack was a practicing member of the Oak Livueja Native American Church. And I apologize if I mispronounce that. And in practice of his worship, his particular branch of the Native American Church allows and has rules and procedures for a variety of different psychoactive substances, not just the traditional peyote that the Native American church is most commonly associated with. This particular branch of the church is open to psilocybin mushroom use and, in fact, has sacramental protocols for it. And as this opinion goes on to explain, Mr. Mack was a acknowledged member of the church, card-carrying member, Um, He had been put to a set of standards by the church and found to have met those standards. And that tells you that this court was inquiring as to whether the church had standards. Take that as something very important. And the court found that there are standards. And additionally, Mr. Mack explained, and the court took testimony on this, and the Supreme Court took that testimony into consideration, that there are rituals and procedures around the consumption of psilocybin mushrooms. In particular, this particular church encourages uh, mushroom experience and seclusion. The opinion also points out that Mr. Mack testified about additional church practices that include, amongst other things, that mushrooms not be consumed in a public space nor involve children, and it also prohibits the operation of vehicles or firearms while engaging in the experience. And Mr. Mack even had gone so far as to undertake additional training to become a minister within the church itself. But here's where things got awry for Mr. Mack. Apparently, a couple of New Hampshire state troopers were sent to Mr. Mack's home on completely unrelated bases, and they were there to serve some papers on him. And in the process of doing that, they were supposed to secure Mr. Mack's firearms, and Mr. Mack cooperated with the officers and allowed them to take possession of his firearms, which were kept in a locked safe, which Mr. Mack, being so cooperative, even allowed the troopers themselves to open the safe. 
and when they did so, they saw his mushrooms on a shelf inside of the safe and took possession of them, and ultimately Mr. Mac was charged. Anyway, you got the point. You can imagine what happened thereafter. He was charged with criminal possession of a controlled substance under New Hampshire law. Now, Mr. Mack did try to explain to the officers that he was um, in possession of the mushrooms due to his religious beliefs and that they were sacramental and he was following the dictates of his church and the police were not terribly impressed. And so as a result, he was indicted and he was charged on a singular count of possession of those psilocybin mushrooms. Now, Mr. Mack had assistance of smart lawyers who knew to assert a religious exemption defense and attempted to do so at inception of his criminal case. Unfortunately, their motion to dismiss was denied by the trial court, which is how this case, even though it never got to final adjudication on the ultimate merits of the charge, found its way all the way to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Now, of intrigue is that at the trial court level, the trial court considered Mr. Mack's claims under both federal and state constitutional principles. And in the ensuing pages of this New Hampshire Supreme Court opinion, the court walks through the, the federal analysis as well as the state analysis. And this goes on for several pages. And to the New Hampshire Supreme Court's credit, they do hit on the, the main psychedelics cases of the U.S. Supreme Court of the past several decades. And chief amongst these, which is right at the very top of the conversation here inside of the opinion, is Employment Division versus Smith, which is a peyote case, but at the heart of it, it's one of the most pivotal cases of the last 50 years, because in turn, it led to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which in turn reinserted the compelling interest test under federal standards. However, and this is, this is really where it gets fascinating. This is at the top of page four of the opinion. Mr. Mack's appeal to the New Hampshire Supreme Court foregoes any federal conversation whatsoever. He doesn't even bring it up. Rather, the appeal is focused exclusively on the New Hampshire Constitution and the protection it affords Mr. Mack. Now, for those of you who don't do appellate work or aren't even lawyers, you may be thinking, why on earth would Mr. Mack take up a Supreme Court case in New Hampshire and not include what might be a really good argument for him? But in defense of Mr. Mack's decision, I think his lawyers did a very smart thing here and obviously made their point because Mr. Mack prevailed in this appeal. Mr. Mack focused the New Hampshire Supreme Court's attention on the part that most mattered, and it was a simple argument to make, that the New Hampshire Constitution very broadly protects religious practices, including the implementation of psychedelics, if done sincerely within religious worship. And as a result, the fact that Mr. Mack was charged, tried, or not tried, but charged and would be tried, under strictly New Hampshire law, it made sense to focus all the arguments just on New Hampshire law. And to that extent, the New Hampshire Constitution arguably more broadly protects Mr. Mack than would the federal Constitution, even though I think under this case the federal Constitution would be enough to get him out of the difficulty he's in. But still, 
This is all about a New Hampshire constitutional provision. Now, all the way down at page 7, which isn't even halfway through this opinion, the New Hampshire Supreme Court starts to do a dive into New Hampshire law and New Hampshire constitutional principles. Again, even the New Hampshire Supreme Court notes that its own Article 5, Part 1 of the New Hampshire Constitution dates back to 1784 and remains, quote, unchanged to this day. And I'm going to read a little bit of this section of the opinion because I think it's really on point here. Uh, The court goes on to say, quote, We have long recognized that in Part 1, Article 5, there is a broad, a general, a universal statement and declaration of the natural and unalienable right of every individual, of every human being in the state, to make such religious profession, to entertain such religious sentiments, or to belong to such religious persuasion as he chooses, and to worship God privately and publicly in the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience and reason. And they're quoting a case from 1868 saying that. They go on to say, And, we observed, if he do it in a way not to disturb others, that right is without exception and without qualification. End quote. Again, the New Hampshire Supreme Court in 2020 is following language from a New Hampshire case dating back to 1868 on this question. The court goes on to say, as we explained, quote, the framers of the Constitution were very careful to state and declare the distinction between mere civil or political rights, although they were natural, essential, and inherent rights belonging to all men, and the rights of conscience, which had the additional quality and excellence of being unalienable. These sound terribly like federal constitutional principles, don't they? There's so much in common between the two, and there is an interplay. So it's no coincidence. Now, this is an absolute key sentence in the opinion, in my opinion. The New Hampshire Supreme Court goes on to say, relative to these rights... Quote, indeed, we observe that such rights of conscience are not conferred by the state constitution, but rather are declared, stated, asserted as something inherent in the people, a right they had before this declaration of rights as much as after. That is at the heart of religious freedom legal questions in this country. And this is something that applies both just in New Hampshire, because obviously this is the court we're talking about and the state law we're talking about, but same principles are are argued and discussed in the federal constitution and each state's constitution, all 50 of them. What does this mean? This means that the court's opinion is that the right of religious liberty and freedom precedes the state, meaning you're not getting those rights from the state. You had those before the state itself even showed up meaning that before there was a New Hampshire, you had these rights. And the fact that there is a New Hampshire now and that people have ceded to the government of New Hampshire the right for the government of New Hampshire to govern the citizens of New Hampshire, still, that government and its ability to legislate yields to these inherent rights. These are rights that precede the state. They are greater than the state. They are inseparable from the individual. And that is critical stuff when we're talking about religious freedom and religious issues in context to the law's ability to regulate. And here's the next critical piece. It's the very next paragraph. 
And again, I'll read the quote. Here the defendant had the constitutional right to entertain such opinions as he chose and to make a religion of them. Whether his opinions are theologically true, the courts are not competent to decide. Indeed, in this country, there is absolute religious equality and no discrimination in law made between different religious creeds or forms of worship, citing a case from New Hampshire from 1898. Another really pregnant and critical set of sentences inside this opinion that encompass the very essence of American religious law. The defendant had the right to entertain opinions of his choice and the right to make a religion of them. And the court goes on to express that whether or not it's true or accurate or theologically sound, it is not for the courts to say. Courts cannot weigh in to determine whether one religion has merit over another. Now, there are cases that discuss a court's ability to determine whether something just basically is a religion, but the courts are not allowed to grade them or weigh them or to put them on a scale and determine one having more or less merit than another. Critically important, there are places a court cannot go, and God bless the New Hampshire Supreme Court, pardon the pun there, for acknowledging that. Um, they've got it right, and this is a really well-thought-out opinion. So, to that extent, the New Hampshire Supreme Court then goes on for several more pages, walking you through the analysis of how it ultimately comes to its decision. And here at the bottom of page 9, the New Hampshire Supreme Court even starts to look at the laws of surrounding states, like, New, or like Massachusetts here, to see how those states have addressed this question. And for example, one of the cases that the New Hampshire Supreme Court looks at is a Massachusetts Supreme Court case regarding hashish in context of religious use. And here, a little later in the opinion, the Supreme Court of New Hampshire even starts a compare and contrast between the federal constitution, and in particular the free exercise clause contained within the First Amendment, still coming up with what ultimately amounts to a very liberal standard. And here, by the time the New Hampshire Supreme Court gets to page 14 of its opinion, it starts to analyze the Oregon versus Smith case and then the resultant backlash that came in the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993. And, as one would expect, the New Hampshire Supreme Court hits on all of the recent federal Supreme Court cases regarding religious freedom and, where applicable, its nexus with psychedelics and religion, even noting that the Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court case of Smith versus Oregon was an intensely controversial decision. And then, of course, by the bottom of page 15, the New Hampshire Supreme Court starts to hit on the ayahuasca cases of more proximate history. And if you're not familiar with this, the Gonzalez versus Ocentro case is one of the most important cases in American religious law of the last, well, arguably century. And in it, the United States Supreme Court affirmed an ayahuasca church's rights to be a church and have access to and 
consumption of a psychoactive substance as part of its religious worship. And so here on page 17, the New Hampshire Supreme Court, after laying out the different elements of its analysis, starts to stitch all of those elements together to support its ultimate conclusion in the case. And this goes on for several pages as it walks through the different New Hampshire and federal cases regarding these questions of religious freedom, even quoting Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who, by the way, is from my own home state here of Arizona. And indeed, our federal courthouse here is named after her. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court picks up part of Justice O'Connor's commentary in Smith that the free exercise clause, the federal free exercise clause that is, quote, was enacted precisely to protect the rights of those whose religious practices are not shared by the majority and may be viewed with hostility. And that, quote, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials, such that the fundamental rights of freedom of worship may not be submitted to vote. They depend on the outcome of no elections. In other words, this notion of individual religious liberty is supposed to be protected from the whimsy of majority, the vagaries of popularity. Um, They shouldn't be subjected to political pressures or placed in a spectra of legislation. And then here at the top of 18 is the explanation, much as I alluded to a little earlier in this analysis of why there is a separate treatment under New Hampshire constitutional law versus federal constitutional law. And here the New Hampshire Supreme Court correctly points out that the role of the federal constitution is to provide a minimum national level of protection for fundamental rights, noting that each state, New Hampshire certainly no exception, has the right to grant even broader protections, which is what New Hampshire's constitution does. And also, again, explains, at least to my estimation, I haven't spoken to Mr. Mack's lawyer, but I suspect I'm right about this, uh, also explains why Mr. Mack's uh, uh, petition to the New Hampshire Supreme Court strictly and only focused on the New Hampshire constitution, because it's a broader protection. So if you can't catch it there, where can you? Now, of great importance for the citizens of New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Supreme Court also expressly rejects adopting Oregon versus Smith, which, if it stayed in effect, would have continued to allow state law to take primacy over religious freedom because it did away with the compelling interest test. The New Hampshire Supreme Court is is rejecting that and requiring a compelling interest test be applied. And here on page 19 of the opinion, the New Hampshire Supreme Court goes on to say, quote, we therefore conclude that when religious practices violate a generally applicable law, our state constitution, like Part 1, Article 2 of the Massachusetts Constitution, demands that there be a balancing of competing interests. And that balancing test requires the state to demonstrate that it has an important governmental interest that is sufficiently compelling that the grant of an exemption to an individual in the position in the position of the defendant, would unduly hinder that goal. In other words, the New Hampshire Supreme Court is effectively following what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act 
instilled at the federal level and which several states' laws or constitutions already provide, which is that it is the government's burden to prove that enforcement of some government regulation should take primacy over an individual's religious expression and freedom. And here in the middle of page 21, I think that the New Hampshire Supreme Court just kind of tucks this in nice and tight and says, quote, Although we recognize that the application of the compelling interest balancing test may present practical challenges, we cannot justify the denial of constitutional rights simply because the protections of those rights require special effort. So basically what they're saying is that even if these are difficult cases to try, even if it makes it a problem for the government and the enforcement of its laws, or it's a headache to have to take these things up on some sort of a, a, a judicial review, there are interests that just float above that. And those interests are inherent human rights, which include rights of religious freedom. And so here, right at the bottom of page 21 and into page 22, the Supreme Court of New Hampshire wraps it all up and says, in conclusion, the trial court did not apply the compelling interest balancing test that Part 1, Article 5 requires. Nor, understandably, did it make the factual findings necessary to determine whether, under the test, the defendant's possession and sacramental use of psilocin or psilocybin mushrooms are protected under Part 1, Article 5. We therefore vacate the trial court's order, denying the defendant's motion to dismiss, and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Essentially, the New Hampshire Supreme Court, in a very loving and gentle and, I think, scholarly fashion, caught the problem that the trial courts just didn't have a standard to apply. And in this instance, this particular trial court did the best it could without guidance. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court said, hey, we, we feel you, court, and we're sorry, but here's your test. You got to go and do this all over again. And so that's where this case wraps up for now. Uh, I don't, again, know where Mr. Mack goes, nor what happens to him. But this is emblematic of the typical type of religious issues that pop up in these sorts of criminal defense cases. Now, the encouraging things to take from this case are that we're seeing yet another state Supreme Court really take the question of religious freedom and psychedelics in tandem seriously. Uh, this court could have just as easily jumped to a conclusion that there was no space in the world for psychedelics and religion to share the same park bench. And they didn't do that. They rather embraced the notion that it's entirely reasonable and conceivable that there can be psychedelic religions and psychedelic sacraments. And additionally, the Supreme Court of New Hampshire also confirms that whenever there's going to be a case that challenges somebody's rights to these religious freedoms, that there's going to be a burden to some extent on that individual to demonstrate that there is a religious context to their use. Which is to say that if you are charged criminally with possession or consumption, etc., um, you can't just jump to a religious defense unless you've got a bona fide religious connection to it. So keep watching this space. More to come. This is going to be an ever-evolving thing over the next decade or two, I suspect, and beyond. So hope you enjoy, and we'll see you soon.
have a question about psychedelics and the law, you're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.